0: Let's pray together. Father, how worthy you are, how worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And as we come to declare your praise together as your people today, we pray that you would truly be blessed and honored and glorified in what you hear and see in us. Lord, we pray as we come to your word that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit, guide us into your truth, and help us become more like your son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Maybe seated. At least the uh, grape juice was icy cold this morning, eh? <laughs> People sure can be hard to get along with, can't they? The struggle is real. <laughs> Just think back on your life over the past several months. How often did you disagree with, get angry at, or fight with someone else? And from anything from them posting something online that just made you sigh and shake your head, to full-out screaming matches that led to a broken relationship and everything in between. Other people can be so. Difficult. And let's be honest, sometimes it can seem like Christians are the worst at this. There are far too many church splits, new denominations, hostile business meetings, and Christian social media spats out there. But even personal relationships between believers can be so hard to maintain, we, because we come from such different, diverse places in life, and we're thrown together with, with differing backgrounds and mindsets and opinions and positions and convictions. So dealing with fellow believers can be stressful. It can be worrisome or difficult. It can be tedious. Even heartbreaking. I probably don't need to tell you this, but this is not how God intended things to be. But God's Word doesn't just tell us how things should be, that we should be united or unified, and then wish us luck. It inspires us with why. Unity is so important, and it teaches us how to remain united, primarily by reminding us of what it is that holds us together as one. And one place we see this especially well is in Ephesians. So please turn there with me now to Ephesians chapter 2, resuming our, our series that we put a pause on a couple weeks ago back in Ephesians, and I believe this is the perfect timing for God to address this for us as a church from his word, as I don't think I've ever seen as much hostility simmering among Christians at large as now. So it's my prayer that this helps keep us focused on and united around what really matters most. The start of Ephesians 2 contains one of the most glorious explanations of the gospel anywhere. Just skim your eyes over the first 10 verses. I'm not going to read them all, but just to refresh yourself on where we've been, Paul takes us on a journey from being dead in sin of being made alive in Christ, explaining how God saves us purely because of his mercy and love and grace. I'll start in verse 8 today. Look at it with me. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, it says we're supposed to walk in or maintain a lifestyle of good works. Not in order to be saved, but because we already have been saved gloriously by his grace. What does this walk look like, though? Much of the rest of Ephesians will unfold this for us. But guess where Paul takes us to first? Both here in chapter two, as well again in chapter four our unity, our oneness in Christ. See, our unity as a church is a massive testament to the power of the gospel. As well as a huge test as to how well we are applying the gospel to our lives. To show this, Paul starts out in verses 11 and 12 by again emphasizing where we have come from. As if the, the picture at the beginning of chapter 2 of us being dead in sin wasn't bad enough. There's more. <laughs> But there, in the beginning, Paul showed how the entire human race came from the same sinful state. Now he talks about how we also come from drastically different backgrounds. So we have the same state, but different backgrounds. As he, a Jew, speaks to his primary audience, non Jewish Gentile believers, who I would guess comprise about 99% of the hearers of this message today. Look at verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's not good. But here's the good news. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's the point. All right. Christ makes us one no matter how far we come from. All right. Christ makes his people, us, one people no matter how far away we come from. The command here. In these verses is to remember. Remember. Remember where you came from. Because it's so easy to forget. Because it's so easy to take it for granted. Remember. Therefore remember that at one time. You Gentiles in the flesh. That Gentiles by birth. Which is most of us. Foreignness is part of our very nature. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What's all this about circumcision? Sounds confusing. Maybe a bit awkward. But it wasn't awkward back then. In fact, this was a flashpoint of controversy. People love to argue about this. (laughs) See, circumcision for Jews was the physical sign of their covenant with God. Meanwhile, Gentiles were largely not circumcised, which meant they were outsiders. It appears as though uncircumcision, like he says here, the uncircumcision became a bit of an insult, an epithet. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, think of David asking, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? (laughs) Like, how dare we let him of all people defy our God? And so Paul reminds Gentile believers that they were once excluded and maligned. Although he does get one little dig in at this offensive perspective from the Jews. He says, this was, they are the, uh, the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, the Jews excluded you based on your physical traits, even though their own identifying mark was a physical trait as well. <laughs> so there's hypocrisy here. But anyway... The division between Jews and Gentiles was very obvious and quite hostile. Some Jewish rabbis even taught that God only created the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. Paul is like, Ephesian believers, you were born into that kind of derision and reproach. But that's just the start here. That's how Gentiles were seen, not how they really were. But what they really were, we're going to find, wasn't, in fact, much better at all. In verse 12, Paul lists out five, you could call, deficiencies or disadvantages that Gentiles had before Christ. First of all, it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ Separated from Christ. They, they likely didn't even know a Savior was to come, let alone who he was. As one commentator puts it, they had no thought or hope of a Messiah or a Christ. Which means, how would they ever be freed or saved from their moral filth or guilt or shame? They had to make stuff up. Right? huge source of the idolatry in the world they would cry out to gods who would never hear them waiting for a deliverance that would never come second it says they were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel in other words they were excluded from citizenship In Romans 9, Paul says Israel was given many incredible blessings and advantages. The adoption, glory, covenants, the law, the worship, promises, patriarchs, and the Christ. To be alienated from Israel meant to be alienated from all of that. I mean, many of you have been immigrants at some point in your life. I have as well. We have lived or are living in a different country than our homeland as Aliens. So, many of you will remember what it's like to live as immigrants. Everything seems different. You don't know many people, if anyone. You're isolated from your family, lonely. Maybe you don't speak the language. Your your legal status may be up in the air, so your future's uncertain. You might feel vulnerable, fearful, insecure. And this is, Paul is saying, this is how we all start out spiritually. Everyone. We are not native citizens of God's kingdom. We're not naturally God's people. We're vulnerable. Foreigners. Aliens. Which figures, as the third sad part of the Gentiles' reality is that they were, it says, strangers to the covenants of Promise. God promised his people a number of times, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. He then made a series of covenants with them to Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, to be strangers to these covenants means we didn't even know them. So all that about blessing those who bless you or your offspring outnumbering the stars or giving you a promised land, yeah, we didn't get any of that. But this isn't just about missing out on physical blessings. This is about missing out on covenantal love. As Brian Chappell explains... Paul wants us to remember that living outside covenant commitments in a state of sin and alienation from God ultimately isolates us from intimacy with all we hold precious. That's what's at stake here. Intimacy with all we hold precious. And in case we still don't get the idea, Paul then claims, fourth, that we were hopeless. Hopeless hopeless. We have having no hope. No hope in the face of death. No hope in the face of powerful forces of evil in this world. No hope in the face of our own personal evils and sins. No hope for mercy. No hope for grace. No hope for eternal life. No hope for healing, justice, or peace. No hope for salvation. Which fittingly describes life without God. Says you having having no hope and without God in the world. Now it's not that unbelievers don't take hope in anything. Many do have hope. But what they place their hopes in will ultimately disappoint them. There's no sure hope, no true hope, because they are without God, and only God can surely and truly save. So here's the, the bleak summary of our fivefold alienation as Gentiles by birth we are Christless, friendless, loveless, hopeless, godless. Some of us may think, well, that was a situation for first century Gentiles. Sure. It's not totally the case for some of us today. Like most of us have been born in societies which were shaped by Judeo-Christian values. Many of us were born into to families, maybe devout families that identified as Christian. And listen, you may be able to identify more with the Jewish people of Paul's day. I believe you could identify with them, that you feel you were born near to God. By God's grace that may be true, but the point here is, this would not have been the case for your ancestors, and the danger may be especially strong for you to take this for granted. Those of you who come, from, come to Jesus from a, a long line of darkness or a long personal history of sin, you don't have as hard a time remembering what God has saved you from. You don't have a hard time taking for granted. So you may light more easily identify with the Gentiles here who were far from God. But the truth is, all of us by birth are hopeless and godless. It doesn't matter who you identify with more or even who you really are, Jew or Gentile. By virtue of being human, you and I have no right to God or the things of God. Verse 3 told us a couple weeks ago that we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We have no right. But then comes another glorious but. Like the but God in verse 4, verse 13 says, but now, but now, in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the good news. No matter how far off we come from, where we come from, near far or far, far, right? Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ makes us one no matter how far we come from. Now this is a geographic metaphor. As if we were physically far away from God and one another. Of course, the truth is that we are spiritually far away without Christ. But imagine, right, being on a a trip or a journey. Far away from your family, your friends, your hometown. You miss people. You do your best to keep in contact with them. You get homesick. But then... If if Ottawa is not your home even now, you may be missing being near right now. But imagine then being far away from home and having no way to contact home or to get home. That's more like the hopeless spiritual situation we're in before God saves us. But when you're far away, what is it like when you finally arrive home after a long absence? The the familiar surroundings seem especially wonderful. The, The hugs and the reunions are sweet. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has made a way to bring us home. And it is glorious. How did he make a way to bring us near? It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ Jesus, we're no longer far off. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. How does blood bring us near, we might wonder? Well, Jesus' blood brings us near by either covering or conquering everything that kept us far away. Covering or forgiving our sin, satisfying God's justice, defeating the devil and death. So are you far away from God today? Are you feeling the alienation of sin or brokenness? The one thing that can bring you to God today is Jesus' death on the cross in your place. The one thing, without it, there is still an infinite abyss that you cannot cross. But with it, your way has been paved, and the price has been paid. Basically, your ticket home has been bought. If you picture it that way, you can come near to God today. Just got to get on the plane. I hope and pray you will. Like if you if you take if you want to take this step, we'd love to help you. We can't save you, but the blood of Christ can draw you near today, no matter how far away you are or you find yourself today. Once it does, the implications and applica- applications for us are many. As we've been brought near to God, restoring a relationship with him, reopening the way for us to worship him, love him, express our gratitude to him. And we've also been brought near to one another, to anyone else who is in Christ. And we're given a common identity as blood-bought brothers and sisters. And this is starting to get at the other major point I want us to glean from this passage, which is this, that Christ is, makes us one through his hostility-destroying, peace-establishing cross. All right? Christ makes his people one through his hostility-destroying, peace-establishing cross. The cross of Christ is the great unifying feature of the church and every believer in it. It says here, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. He has made us one. He's united us. If I were to ask, what unites people as Canadians? I'm sure I get a variety of responses from you. Cold weather, I'm not joking, when I heard that there was not going to be a heat in the building today, I said, oh, we'll survive, just bundle up, we're Canadians. (laughs) It's the most Canadian service we've had, I think. Does that unite us? Cold weather, snow, I mean, we can't feel our extremities. Hockey, maple syrup, friendly and peaceful living, this is actually a hard question if you think about it. Right? As, as not all of Canada is frigid. Not all Canadians love hockey or syrup. Not even every Canadian is friendly, believe it or not. <laughs> Any common identity that holds us together is actually fairly tenuous. Frail. But what unites us as Christians? an easier answer, right? Jesus, his blood and his cross hold us together. Every believer in Jesus has been washed, forgiven, and transformed by the cross. Every believer, Jews and Gentiles have been brought together by Christ's blood. And far more than that, young and old, rich and poor, men and women, able-bodied, disabled, intelligent, unintelligent, educated, uneducated, all of these are brought together in Christ. People of every race, ethnicity, nation, language have been made one in Christ. He has made us one. This passage will go on to say that he has made peace made peace this isn't just some trivial or fragile peace that has been that has been made between us says he himself is our peace who has made us both one this is jesus established peace between god and people and between people and people but even more strongly than that it says he himself is our peace In other words, he is the embodiment and personification and incarnation of peace. Shalom, which is more than just absence of strife. It's a wholeness, well-being. So Jesus gives the peace that allows a believer going through a really rough season To still say, despite their circumstances, it's well with my soul. Jesus gives the peace that allows believers who are at odds with each other to, to put aside their offenses and lovingly pursue reconciliation. Jesus gives the peace that will eventually bring full shalom to the earth. Peace on earth. Really, the church is meant to serve as a foretaste of that day. And despite how difficult it can seem at times, this peace is very possible between us now. Essentially, Jesus has broken down the barriers that prevent us from coming together. For the Jews and Gentiles of his day, what was it that kept them most apart? It was the law. Mosaic law. Look at verse 14 again. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh, that is, in his body, or in his death, He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now we don't know for certain what Paul means by the dividing wall of hostility. It's very possible that this refers though to the actual barrier wall in the Jewish temple. Where, which it separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. Gentiles could only come into this court, nothing else. This wall visually demonstrated the Gentiles' exclusion and separation from Jews. There's even inscriptions on the wall that can be seen in museums to this day that warn Gentiles to not go any further on pain of death. This wall really symbolized How the the law as a whole kept non-Jews at a distance. This is why verse 15 talks about Christ abolishing the law. Now we know from Matthew 5, Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. But having fulfilled the law, all barriers that the law set up between people were destroyed. As well, Christ forever removed all condemnation that the law convicts us of. So now, the law can't keep us from God either if we're in Christ. Perhaps the best way to to put it is that Christ abolished the covenant of the law. And replaced it with a new covenant. One for all people. As it says, that he might create in himself... One new man in place of the two, so making peace. When it says he created in himself one new man, it's saying he created a new kind of human. We used to be two. Two kinds of people as Jews and Gentiles. Two groups. Two races. But now we're one. United as a, a new race. One new man in place of the two. As I studied for this sermon, I read a story about an Australian bus driver who tells of driving a school bus that carried both white and indigenous children in in Australia. And you know probably some of the hostility that exists there. And one day he got fed up with all the, the racial bickering on the bus. So he pulled the bus over. And he asked the white kids on the bus, What color are you? They said, white. But he replied, No, you're green. On my bus, anyone who rides my bus is green. He then repeated the question for the other children who said they were black. But he corrected them as well, said, No, you're green if you're on this bus. Seemed to quiet them down a bit, so he pulls back onto the road. But shortly after, he heard someone at the back announce, all right, light green on this side of the bus, dark green on this side. (laughs) The bus driver actually had a pretty good idea of how to make peace. He needed a new race, a new category. But he couldn't pull it off. Jesus pulled it off. Now to be clear... This new humanity doesn't make us colorblind as if Jesus abolishes our races. We maintain many beautiful ethnic distinctives. These even continue into heaven. right? But in the midst of our diversity, we have a new shared identity now. A new color, if you will. The color of blood that transcends all other identities. This work of Christ is so grand, it can only be described as a new creation. It's said that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Note that Jesus doesn't just make all believers the same or alike. So he doesn't turn Jews into Gentiles or Gentiles into Jews or create some kind of half-breed. He instead makes something new and better. He renews us both so that believers in Christ are truly a new and undivided humanity, which should really set us apart in our intensely divided world. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. It does us well to remember this truth when we notice our peace is breaking down. Kent Hughes says, this must not be watered down. This is the answer to alienation, to racism, to prejudice, to hatred, and to estrangement. Whatever the, the wall of hostility referred to exactly, the point is, it's gone now. And Jesus broke it down. Not literally at the temple, but in his flesh, in his body, on the cross. Paul uses graphic words here. Jesus didn't just dig a hole in the wall for us to crawl through. He broke down. He destroyed the barriers. He tore down the wall. He ripped it apart. (laughs) Verse 16 goes on to say, he killed the hostility. Look at it. That he might, in, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he put hostility to death by dying. Armaged Robinson says, Christ in his death was slain, but the slain was a slayer too. if you can come to a place of recognizing that your hostility was killed on the cross, that Jesus died a brutal, bloody death to pay for your strife, your fighting, your anger, your hurts, and then if you can come to a place of recognizing that the other person that you're in conflict with is someone that Jesus died for. The path to reconciliation becomes much more conceivable and viable. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The gospel is what brings us together and the gospel is what should hold us together. There is no other unifying force like it in the world. Notice that the reconciliation Jesus brings again is both vertical and horizontal. He reconciles us as both to God, making peace between God and man. And he reconciles us to one another, making us one new man, so making peace Verse 17 says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Gentiles were far off. Jews were near. But both of them needed Jesus. So no matter if you are far off or near, hear Jesus preaching peace to you today. Believers are all in the same boat now. A glorious, freed, redeemed, renewed boat. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now this verse doesn't just mean that we all have individual access to God. But we both means that we have access together to come before God. We stand together as one people in God's presence with no divisions in Christ. In some sense, our experience as of our reconciliation to God is incomplete until we get this. All Christians, no matter who they are, have the Holy Spirit living inside of them now. All Christians no matter how difficult they may be, have direct access to God. Be careful who you pick a fight with. All Christians, no matter their offenses, have their sins washed away, washed clean by Jesus' blood. All Christians, no matter their differences from you, Are united to you now. And so we come together before God. And we dare not. Hold to any of our divisions. Each one of us. Has peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus how could we ever. Withhold peace from one another. In our Lord Jesus Christ. I know it doesn't always feel this way. Making peace or keeping peace can seem unattainable. But that's why this is here. Because we need to be reminded of what is objectively true. Much like we need to be reminded how even when we sin, we're still faithful saints in Christ. Or how that even when we feel low, we've been raised to heavenly glory in Christ. Christ. These are what is objectively true. And this reminds us that even when things are really broken between us, peace is still possible because real peace already exists between us. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Christ's blood has already secured our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. So if we have Jesus, we can work towards reconciliation and find unity. Christ cannot be torn apart again. So if we are in Christ, nothing can tear us apart forever. So, let's get practical. All right, how do we live out the peace of the gospel today? Well, let's first identify... Where are our walls of hostility today? What's keeping us apart? Some of us need to start first and foremost in our homes, our homes with our families, where there may be clear hostility. Because the the closest believers to you may be your spouse or your kids. Your parents, or your siblings, your extended family. Some of you may have given up on there ever being shalom in your household again or in your family. Today is the day to take hope back. You no longer have no hope. You have Jesus. <laughs> and today is the day to start taking practical, sacrificial, humble steps toward peace. Maybe by identifying anywhere you were wrong, owning up to it, asking for forgiveness. Some of you have had really hurtful or broken relationships within the church. Someone has wounded you, or you've wounded them, Likely the pain goes both ways. Someone needs to take the first step towards reconciliation. Let it be you. Let it be you. Make the call. Take the trip. Pull them aside after church. Can we talk? Romans 14, 19 commands us. Commands Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What would it mean for you to honestly pursue these things? To go after them, run after them. Let us pursue what makes for peace. Last year, we looked at this passage and considered what it had to say about racial reconciliation. Reconciliation. And it is one of the the best, most practical passages to help us wade through those waters. I would commend those sermons to you. It was in November. You can find them on our website or on podcasts. But God has brought us together as a beautifully diverse church in almost every sense. But there will be times that our different ethnic backgrounds will clash Or times when we hurt or offend each other. Intentionally or unintentionally. Whether we're black or white. Canadian or first nations. Asian, African, Arab, whatever. Our relationships can be fraught with hard histories. Hatred and hostilities. Like name your culture and it's likely there is someone that you were raised to not like. But Christians should be able to show the watching world a different way. A better way. Like it said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. All forms of hostility ought to be banished within the church of Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes comments, the church has an immense responsibility to be a pocket of reconciliation and shalom in an alienated world. Reconciliation is essential to worship. Alienation gives the lie to what the church is all about. Now there's still, of course, a lot of hard work that needs to be done in these areas. Work of listening, understanding, repenting, forgiving, and reconciling. But let's commit to doing the work. After all, we were remade, recreated to walk in good works. So let's commit to that. And finally, let's talk about COVID. About to step on some toes. But actually, I really do first want to commend you as my church family in this area because I'm proud. Of how our church has handled disagreements overall. I really am. So keep it up. Good job. Okay. At the same time. I feel the need to caution us. And warn us of the dangers here. Because I know. That there are a lot. Of disagreements about COVID. Under the surface. There are people in our church family. Who are all over the map. To all extremes. Some are super cautious, some not at all. Like there are anti-maskers and triple masks, maskers and everything in between. Oh, do you guys know that they've developed vaccines for COVID? <laughs> in so many ways, this pandemic has brought the worst out in us. But again, I think our churches had a pretty admirable response overall because we could have let silly, superficial things divide us. We didn't. It really is okay to disagree on many of the things related to COVID. It really is okay to disagree. As long as we don't let them supersede our unity around the gospel. Like some will still think we've been too cautious, so others will see us as too reckless. But at the end of the day, our unity in Christ is not worth sacrificing at the altar of COVID. And so, may we continue to refuse to divide ourselves or create distinctions within the body. That's why, for example, we will not ever. Be asking for proof of vaccination for worship gatherings. We won't do it. Some may feel strongly, or so, we do know many people feel strongly on both sides, but our unity in Christ is more important, far more important. It's also why we will not be flaunting civil disobedience as a church. Unless the authorities prohibit us from following clear biblical commands. To do otherwise would divide the church and cast disrepute on the gospel. Now this kind of balancing act is not easy. And we very well may err at times. But it's our prayer. That we'll see each other in the body of Christ, that we will see each other despite our differing opinions or convictions as fellow believers who are beloved by our Father, blood-bought by Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and brought together intentionally by God into one body. That's what matters. And that's secured peace between us. May we Lean into that peace in these divisive days. We need it. Tim Challies posted a blog a few weeks ago that was, I think, eerily relevant for us today. In it, he talks about how Christians ought to love and value unity in the midst of diversity. He says this, Gospel communities should reflect a kind of gospel diversity, a community in which a diverse group of people honor, enjoy, and serve one another. As we look around the church, we ought to see people with a wide range of differences experiencing the deepest kind of unity, different races and ethnicities, different ages and socioeconomics, different convictions on politics, different convictions on education, different convictions on vaccinations, and so on. The gospel that was sufficient to bind Jew to Gentile and Gentile to Jew is sufficient to bind any two or any 200 Christians together. And yet, he goes on to say, if we're honest, we kind of wish we had uniformity, right? We think unity is okay, but like it'd be even better if everyone was exactly like me. Everyone thought like me or acted like me, had the same convictions as me. But then he provocatively claims, if that were the case, we'd have a cult, not a church. We'd also never really display the power of the gospel or grace. He explains, the inner cultist tries to convince us that life would be better Relationships would be easier, the church would be safer if only everyone was the same, the same as me. Yet such a community would display little of the gospel because it would require little divine grace. It takes no divine power to foster community amid uniformity. But it takes great divine power to bind together those who are in so many ways so very different. I am so thankful that God's great power has been at work in us to bind us together by grace in Christ. And whenever you're having difficulty extending the same grace to another, remember, remember that you were once a very difficult person yourself. Maybe you still are. But Christ pursued you. Christ preached peace to you. May he truly be our peace today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. You see our world around us. You see the ways it tries to pull us apart to divide us, to destroy your church. And God, we thank you that we have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us that has bound us together. And we pray that, that, you, that you would strengthen that in us. Not weaken. We pray that we would be a people united around the gospel. Washed clean by the cross. And all about seeing your glory extend in this world, whatever the cost. We pray that you would build this in us right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.